And welcome to this week's episode of Making It in Asheville. We are uh, joined by Tim Gormley, uh, who has his hands in many things in Asheville. Uh, the, the, the primary, or what you might have seen or heard him from, is Burial Beer. We'll get into all of the other projects uh, in this episode. But Tim, thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's really exciting. I, I love what you guys are doing. And um, as I'm sure we'll get into more as we chat, um, just like I'm very passionate about the the kind of stories uh, that, that come come with just people and businesses and projects and art and all that stuff. So uh, I love that you guys kind of have de- dedicated yourselves to telling those stories. So it's, it's truly an honor to, to be a part of it. Oh, wow. Well, I thank, thank you. We appreciate it. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that what has me excited about today's episode, um, not unlike some of our past guests, but it, it seems like you are doing I'll say just a, a lot and it <laughs> and it seems to be very like curious meaning you're following interests and sometimes it leads into a different direction than what the obvious or like next step in a progression might be and I don't know if I'm making this up but I look over your shoulder I see books on Amaro <laughs> and vermouth uh and that's not beer like that's beer adjacent it's it's maybe alcohol and then you have forestry camp hat on but i'm thinking burial beer forestry camp is like this incredible experience just like south of downtown and so um before we get into i guess the businesses that you're running and what you're doing here in Asheville, have you what was like the childhood like of this curious mind (laughs) that now has a bunch of businesses and and makes uh, a ton of uh, at least beverages, but I'm sure other things too. <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh man, where to begin? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I can try to give you a little bit of the arc of my of my life uh, without getting too detailed. But essentially, I I grew up in um, south southeastern Pennsylvania, Delaware County. Huh. Um, kind of a suburb of philadelphia yeah which is uh, just for s's and g's because i i went to school in southeastern pennsylvania oh, uh, where, where'd you go where'd you grow up i grew up in a tiny little town called glen mills which is uh yeah and downing or, uh well technically i was born in downing town yeah but i i mostly grew up in glen mills and i went to high school in westchester wow yeah um, cool. Small, so yeah, world. I basically grew up you know on, on a couple acres in the woods and so um you know spent a lot of my youth just kind of like exploring the woods and um and then was got really into as i grew up got really into sports played soccer uh really really seriously i was on um like a a kind of premier league what they called it. it was one of the best teams in all of pennsylvania we got to travel all over actually the world went to Brazil at one point, um, to play soccer. So that was pretty, pretty cool. Um, uh, my dad has had a variety of jobs in his life, but, um, I feel like in my formative years, he was, he was, uh, cooking, uh, at a French restaurant. So, uh, he doesn't really consider himself a chef or anything like that, but, 
uh, definitely grew up with a lot of kind of creativity in the kitchen, um, which I think definitely has, you know, affected me in, in some subconscious ways. Uh, ended up going to college at Penn State, um, spent all four years uh, at main campus in, in State College, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, honestly, I had no idea what I wanted to do uh, when I grew up, you know. Yeah. And so I was always a pretty good student. Uh, math and science was was, was kind of what I was most interested in. Um, so I ended up deciding to go to college or at least my, my initial major was electrical engineering. And so I got really, really into music. Um, not so much as a musician for, I I guess for whatever reason, sports kind of dominated. Um, and so I never, never really took on an instrument, but, um, just was a hugely into music, um, just as, as like a listener and, um, loved kind of, you know, the punk rock DIY scene was really into metal. Um, very various. I mean, I, I have a very diverse, uh, yeah. ear for music, but definitely spent like any chance I got once I, once I got my driver's license, I was driving into Philly to go to shows, you know, I, um, and there's a great scene in, Oh in, Yeah philadelphia from yeah have you ever been to the first unitarian church in philly but it's it's uh, yes i've heard of it i know that all of my friends uh most of my philly friends are in bands or have been in bands and that place they say was like formative and the most amazing uh and most important place that they would they would go for shows absolutely yeah i i couldn't even tell you the number of shows that i probably went to there and Mm -hmm. Um, it was, yeah, that, that was pretty kind of critical. So anyway, I guess what I'm getting at is that, um, my, my thought with this electrical engineering thing was that I could kind of apply some of my interest in math and science to something that could be potentially used in the music field. So Mm -hmm. my idea was to kind of become like an audio engineer or or something like that. Um, as it turned out in my first couple of years, of college, I didn't do a very good job of paying attention to school. And so, <laughs> uh, I didn't have the best grades. And so I kind of reached a point where I needed to, to pivot a little bit. And at that point, it just kind of made the most sense for me to, to shift into business, a business degree. So I ended up huh. graduating, uh, with a, a degree in, um, business logistics or like supply chain management, Um, which is, you know, it's kind of funny when I think about it because I often, when I'm, when people ask me what my degree is in, I, I almost like answer it with a little bit of embarrassment, (laughs) even though like I own a business now and, uh, it's certainly helpful. It just, you know, when I was growing up, um, being in this kind of punk rock scene, like going to school for business felt <laughs> like and the, logistics. The I would do. <laughs> so, and I think that that, I think that that's notable because I think even to this day, um, as a business owner, uh, if it wasn't for my, my business partners, Doug and Jess, I don't think that I would be nearly as successful because like, 
um, in a lot of ways, I kind of like sh- shy away from the business side of it. And yeah. I, I treat it, treat it much more like, uh, an outlet for like artistic expression. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very, very thankful to have Doug and Jess in my life who, who are just, um, incredible at that kind of running the business side and like kind of letting me do my thing, but also reining me in at times. And, uh, it's a really beautiful kind of yin and yang relationship that we have. But, um, anyway, I, I, so I think that's perfect, right? So you, uh, to try and recap and, and restate, uh, first of all, I think that there's this incredible, I'll call it correlation, but it might be causation, uh, in my own life of people who grew up loving punk rock and the punk rock scene and like hardcore music are oh. incredibly interesting and do cool things. That's, <laughs> a, that's, a, it's a, it's at least in my own experience, I've noticed that. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure what it is about it other than, you know, uh, my attempt is that they saw people just creating a thing uh, and creating is, is a good thing to do. It's, it's it seems yeah. to me. Um, no, I, I think you're totally right. And I think that, uh, one of the things that so much drew me to, to the, those music scenes was like, it's kind of like this, uh, subculture of people. Right. And, mm-hmm. and there's a, a deep level of camaraderie that comes with loving something that's, kind of like on the peripherals of society you know and it's like a fairly small it's a niche group and i think that um you know i often think about how how similar craft beer is to that i mean nowadays craft beer isn't nearly as niche as it was when i first got into it you know 20 years ago but um it's still it still is like very much a subculture and and there's you know, so many relationships that come out of, um, oh, you know, you're into craft beer or you make beer. Um, we immediately have something in common that not not everyone does have in common. And and I think that that, that also relates to Asheville. You know, I feel like part of the what drew me to Asheville was that same sort of concept. You know, it, it's a it's a small little artsy community. And that's um hmm. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I feel like even though there's so many, obviously there's a huge diversity of, of interests and, and artistic expressions and whatever in Asheville, but I do still feel like there's a lot of camaraderie here of just yeah. being like, you know, we're, we've, we've made a conscious decision to live in Asheville, you know, where there's really no industry yeah. Um, so what, why was that? And, uh, we all, we have something in common <laughs> by making that decision. I love it. I think that you're, uh, you're onto something. I, uh, <laughs> that is a beautiful way to take the thought. And so, um, yes, I agree. I think that the otherness makes us uh, alike, right? Like the, the fact that we've all chosen to be here, um, is, is, at the very least, we have that. And so uh, it makes for, I think, easier friendships and easier community building. And uh, at least what we've experienced is like the benefit of the doubt. Like, hey, you're, you've chosen to be here. I <laughs> guess it's because you you want to help the place uh, 
you know, leave it better than you found it. Um, and so how, I guess, how long ago did you move to Asheville from Southeastern PA, uh, State College, Pennsylvania, like, um, maybe just like the landmarks that happened on the way and how long after did burial start? So yeah, the way the timeline kind of goes, I graduated college in 2003. I, um, moved into Philly. I worked at a produce company, one of the biggest produce companies in, in the U S kind of as a shipping manager. Um, and actually that, that logistics degree. Yeah, exactly. Right but, you know, working with produce uh, every day was, was actually really enlightening. I mean, I we sold all sorts of interesting produce, fruits, vegetables, things that I honestly wasn't even aware existed. And so that really started to, I think, in, uh, one another one of those kind of subconscious things of, yeah. of walking down this path of kind of utilizing uh, unique ingredients. Um, anyway, I was I was working in at this produce company. I was managing all these, you know, inner city guys, uh, every color of human being, every type of background. And, um, you know, at that time and probably still today, Philly was a pretty dangerous place to live. And, um, what neighborhood were you in? Uh, I lived, um, in, uh, Northern Liberties, right on. Yeah, uh, cool. which was, which was pretty great. Um, actually, yeah, no, at least Fishtown. Na- Fishtown. Sorry. I was going to say, yeah. Came to me. Yeah. So like, my my buddies like, are in Fishtown. Between Kensington and Northern Liberty. Yeah, Fishtown. That's what yeah, it's called. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I don't know what it was like in uh, early or mid 2000s, but in 2020, awesome. What a yeah. cool little part of town. Yeah. When I was there, um, it was definitely on the rise. Yeah. Uh, I lived like one block behind johnny brenda's for which is sure cool. Really cool all right venue. yeah yeah um yeah. well everyone then, who doesn't know pennsylvania or philly's like what's happening right, right. <laughs> right. but philly is a cool little town i think so i think that um in in like the in the realm of cities philly like Asheville to me uh so far has been a town that gets the respect of a city uh though you know, just in terms of total population, hard to argue that that this is like a city city, right? right but it's sure. part of the conversation of of American cities, which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, I think that Philly does a really interesting thing. At least I haven't been to, you know, the Chicago's, but like its little neighborhoods feel like tiny cities in their own right. And there's this like sprawl that happens, but it's not uh, an LA sprawl and it's not a Houston sprawl because it still f- feels like one place. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm really into city as like a middle city or Philly as a middle city where New York is just overwhelming. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden Philly and Fishtown has like parts that are to me like Ash Philly community uh, like, uh, yeah. but still it's millions of people. So it's a totally different scale. Oh yeah. Yeah. My relationship with Philly is uh, it's, I think it's such that I, I didn't really realize what I had and, until I left. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I was at, while I was living there, I was really involved in the kind of the art scene and the music scene. And um, I was actually dating a, a woman that went to art school and she, when she graduated and actually my, my younger sister had just graduated from college and 
uh, I was I was working with all these kind of inner city guys that were always telling me all these stories, terrible stories about things that were happening to them and their families, drive-bys on their house. Like it, it just, all these kind of things culminated in me really feeling like I needed to get out of there. Yeah. And so, um, this girl I was dating at the time, uh, felt like she would have some more opportunity in the art world uh, on the West coast. And so we, we kind of like took this two week vacation where we uh, flew into Seattle, um, and then took, took trains down to Portland and San Francisco. And it was like, we were going to decide what, what city we wanted to move to amongst those three. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we decided to, to move to Seattle. Um, and actually I, I just kind of like pitched the idea to my sister kind of half jokingly, like, Hey, you want to move to Seattle with me? And she was like, okay. And I was like, Oh, really? <laughs> uh, and so the three of us drove out to Seattle. I pretty much, you know, got rid of all of my possessions. Uh, anything that fit in the car was what went. Um, and I think, kind of a notable part of that that part of the story is that my mom actually got me a uh, like a Mr. Beer kit as a graduation present from college. Wow. Uh, she she knew that I was really into beer. I really got into beer in in my college years. Um and so but I it, it, so it's one thing to to drink a lot of beer in college years, right? Like I think that that's <laughs> call it we'll call it common in the like american uh big university state state college right penn state that's yeah. common it's another yeah. thing to then say well like when you say into beer right the, the <laughs> macro brewery thing was you know probably even more pronounced than today micros i don't know what it looked like in early 2000s i've read a couple of books but i, I don't know what it was like in pennsylvania like if you were drinking <laughs> what dogfish head was that like the 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 cool beer then i don't even know well for, yeah for sure uh dogfish head is incredibly influential to me um i i was definitely drinking you know like everyone pretty much everyone uh or at least of <laughs> of that generation yeah. that starts drinking beer you know in high school you're drinking the cheapest thing you can get basically yeah. um and, you know, I was drinking a lot of like Rolling Rock, which at the time was being made in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, sure, yeah. uh, some Yingling here and there, another classic uh -huh. of Pennsylvania. But uh, when I was in college, I, there was this little kind of like pool hall thing that had an adjoining kind of bottle shop. Mm -hmm. And I found myself going there uh, once I was 21 um, and this bottle shop had this kind of like build your own six pack sort of thing. Cool. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever seen that in my life. I didn't even know that was a thing. So I just started to like grab these bottles off the shelf that looked interesting and, um, uh, just found myself, you know, exploring what was out there. And, um, the, kind of one of those like common questions that gets asked to a lot of brewers is like, you know, what was your epiphany beer or whatever, yeah. you know, the beer you, you drank that changed everything for you. And for me, it was, um, some of the beers from Samuel Smith, which is, um, uh, from Tadcaster in the UK. And it was probably the Imperial stout, uh, that really kind of blew my mind. And, um, 
and then that just kind of sent me on a journey of of trying lots of different beers and uh-huh. it's it's kind of funny to think now i mean the world is of beer has changed so dramatically yeah. since then i mean i was just thinking about how there was like there was this thing i think they i think they they called it like the first name club or something like that but that was this was basically like this group of american brewers that were basically as famous as could be in the beer world and it was like people that you could just say their first name in a in a conversation about craft beer and people would know exactly who you're talking about and this was like adam avery from avery brewing this was tommy arthur from lost abbey and port brewing this was Vinny so Chilerzo from Russian River. This was Sam Calagione from Dogfish Head, Rob Todd from Allagash. Like these were these were names that like if you were into beer, you knew you knew their names off wow. the top of your head. And now um with I don't know, eight thousand plus breweries, I, I don't even I can't even keep up at yeah. this point. And there's just like um I think there's still maybe a few kind of iconic like modern day iconic brands out there, but there's just, there's a, I mean, I felt like at one point I could, I probably had at least heard of like 90% of the breweries in, in the U S yeah. and now, now I haven't heard of, you know, nine, 90%. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy, um, uh, to think about that, but, and, and so uh, that, that makes me want to ask a question and I'll, I'll hold the question until, uh, just to connect the dots. So Portland for, I'll guess a number of years, and then you probably drove to Asheville if I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I actually lived in Seattle. I lived I'm sorry, in Seattle, Seattle too. For five years. Okay. Um, and that's kind of where I started to brew professionally. Okay. Um, so it was, uh, 2009, uh, is, was when I first got a job at a brewery and just kind of started out um, working there weekends only. Kind of kept my day job. Mm-hmm. Worked there on weekends, you know, cleaning kegs, uh, cleaning the brew house, do, doing whatever mm-hmm. menial jobs needed to be done. Um, and then just kind of slowly learned on the job really how to brew uh, on a on a big scale. And yeah. it was actually kind of uh, subsequent to that where I felt like, okay, um, I'm starting to brew professionally and, and I haven't home brewed in like years. Um, so I need to get back into that. And it was right around the same time that I met, um, my current business partners, Doug and Jess Reeser. So, um, Doug is originally from Ohio, kind of like the suburbs of Cleveland. Um, Jess grew up in Brooklyn, New York, but, um, they both found themselves out in Seattle and that's where we met. And when I first met them, they were not really that into beer. They were kind of into wine more than anything. And I, I kind of uh, got them into beer, I guess. And with, um, with just enthusiasm and, <laughs> and repetitions. You're like, you yeah, got to yeah. taste this one. How, how does, is, is that how it goes? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Doug often tells the story of how Russian River Pliny the Elder mm. uh, was, was kind of like his... Uh, epiphany beer if you will and and i still remember the moment that we went to the bar and got that beer and yeah. uh you know that was a very iconic beer i mean it still kind of is in some in some uh 
facets of the craft beer scene, a, a very iconic beer. And um, so anyway, we Doug, Doug and I started to homebrew a lot. And um, then I ended up having a spell where I was working part-time at the brewery, part-time at a homebrew shop. Um, then Doug, Doug, Jess and I started writing this beer blog together. So we were kind of documenting, um, our travels, you know, at that point in our lives, it was like anywhere we traveled, it was like, first thing you look up is what breweries are we going to go to? And so, uh, you know, we, we tell our experiences at tap rooms and we do like beer reviews and current events and all that stuff. Did, did and, it get traction? Like, did people start yeah, reading? I, I think so. It, it, we were, we were pretty ambitious about it. And between the three of us, we were trying to put out like, you know, three, four, five posts a week. Wow. Right on. I mean, it's like a yeah, pretty media. That's a media company. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was pretty intense there. And actually it was really like, through writing that blog and and partially through kind of being involved in, in as a brewer and all that home brewing a lot it was really when we just started to make a lot of connections in the beer scene in mm -hmm. seattle um and you know we would go into bars or breweries and you know people kind of like knew who we were and um so we, we got to kind of feel that that was the first time we really got to feel the camaraderie of the craft beer scene. Yeah. And it was like, it was really through that, that we, and of course, you know, the, the love, the general love of beer and enjoying brewing beer and, um, feeling like we were brewing some cool beers and just all these things kind of yeah. coalesced into a thing where it was like, okay, if we don't start our own brewery someday, I think we'll regret it forever. So we really, just kind of started to chip away at a business plan while we were in Seattle. Um, Doug has what was um, an attorney at the time, and um, Jess was working for some nonprofits, and she has a background uh, in art. She has like a master's degree in arts administration. Um, so we kind of had felt like we had a good like you know the the three legs to a yeah. table. You know, it was like. <laughs> We had, uh, we had that kind of law side. Doug started his own practice. So he, he had experience, um, starting a business. Mm -hmm. uh, I had the kind of production side of things and Jess was really good kind of administrative, but also like had a really great eye for, for art and design and yeah. stuff like that. So, um, we eventually decided kind of collectively that we we didn't want to start the business in seattle and there was a few different factors there part of it was that doug and jess had uh, their firstborn son axel in seattle they they knew they wanted to have two kids all their family was was back east so they, they kind of wanted to be closer to family mm -hmm. and then for me i ended up getting this uh this my kind of like dream job out there in seattle was to work for this brewery called sound brewery which um they were making very kind of like true to style belgian and german beers mm -hmm. which um at the time and still to this day are like the the styles i'm most passionate about and they were doing them really well and they were winning awards for them 
And so I sought out this job and I got the job and I started brewing there and I was pretty much brewing every batch of beer there and we were continuing to win awards. And um, I would often tell people that asked that I worked at Sound Brewery as a brewer, brewer. And a lot of people, more, more often than not, people were like, never heard of it, never heard of it. And to me, that was a sign. It was it felt telling that it was very hard to stand out in that market. Mm. Uh, Seattle not only has a great scene of its own, but it has access to the whole West Coasts. You know, and the West Coast is, at least at that time, was just kind of like more mostly dominating the craft beer scene. Sure. So um, that was kind of it for me. Uh, I loved Seattle, and I miss it every day but um it, it in a lot of ways it kind of was a business decision for me to to leave and so i had um i had a friend that went to college at unc asheville that i had visited and so that was kind of my introduction to asheville and i it definitely had a great beer scene that was you know back when asheville was kind of like perennially the, the beer city usa or whatever wow um, so it had a good scene and it was, it had a lot of what I loved about Seattle from like, uh, outdoorsy perspective. And, um, it definitely, like I mentioned earlier, had that kind of like artsy and, um, it, something about it felt, felt really comfortable. Um, sure. so I kind of pitched the idea to Doug and Jess to move to Asheville. They came to visit, they fell in love with it. They were like, this is it. We're moving here. And what so, year about is this? 2000? Well, we ended up, uh, we arrived in Asheville, uh, like September, October of 2012. 2012. Wow. So yeah, I was in, I was in Seattle for five years. And, um, and I, I'm, I'm interested. So, and the entire time as you're moving to Asheville, it's like, we're, we're moving to open a brewery. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so Seattle, much bigger city. Yeah. Hard even while winning awards to break through the noise and be a important brewery in town in a smaller town that's considered beer city USA. <laughs> what was the, what was the logic that like, yeah, we'll come in and we'll disrupt this thing. Like it'll be, we'll do our <laughs> own thing. Like there's room for us. How did you, what, what can you remember to 2012 and the thoughts of like, yes, there's room for us still. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's often kind of a, uh, yeah, it's, it, it feels contradictory to say we left Seattle because it was too competitive and then we moved to Beer City, USA. <laughs> to that totally doesn't make sense. And uh, I, I think part of it was that despite having this great scene here, we felt like there really wasn't a lot of breweries here that were like stepping outside of the box that was the beer scene at that time, mm. you know, like the beer scene at that time felt like it was, you go to a brewery and you, you know, you got that full spectrum. You've got the, the light beer through the stout and you've got, you know, an amber ale and you've got a pale ale and you've got an IPA and you've got, you know, maybe a, a wheat beer of some kind. And that was like the, that was the program. That was how you did it. And, um, we really had ambitions to, to do something a little bit different to make more like, uh, Belgian inspired beers, 
uh, I think really that was the thing. So in 2010, Doug, Jess, and I went to went on kind of like a vision quest of sorts to Europe. Um, this was after we had decided to start the brewery. Um, we were, and we were kind of just like looking for inspiration. We wanted to have that experience. Um, we were always very, at least I, I was always incredibly interested, like I said, in Belgian and, mm-hmm. and German beers. So we went to Europe. Um, we went, went to Belgium. We went to Netherlands. We went to Germany. We went to France. And we just drank our way through it all, you know, and went to as many of those iconic places. And it was really um, this the concept of farmhouse brewing was was and and still is, in my opinion, like the most beautiful, romantic concept in beer. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, you know, this idea of people farming the land and making beer uh, using ingredients that are available to them on the farm and brewing seasonally. And um, that, that concept really resonated really with all three of us. And so when we got to Asheville and we started to look for property, uh, look for a place for the brewery, uh, our initial concept was to, kind of do a farmhouse inspired brewery so we were looking kind of on the outskirts of town we were looking at you know larger pieces of of land and um we kind of quickly realized that brewing outside of city limits has a lot of challenges um you know water is like one of the most important parts of making beer And, um, you know, if you're going to brew in any reasonable capacity, you're going to need a lot of access to water. So if you're outside of the city, uh, and you're having to drill wells and stuff like that, which can be extremely expensive, you're having to figure out what to do with all your wastewater. And, you know, if you're on a septic system, that can be incredibly challenging. And then there's the matter of getting raw materials out there to, can a can a 16 wheeler get to this property you know like there's so many little things wow. like that that yeah. kind of quickly became obvious that maybe um this was biting off more than we could chew at the time so we uh we just eventually started looking kind of changing our our concept a little bit as far as a space goes and then we ended up finding the space uh, in the South or what is now called the South slope at the time. I don't even know if that neighborhood had a name. Um, but yeah, basically right where our tap room is now, yeah. um, on at 40 Collier Avenue. Um, that was the space that we initially found. And actually we signed the lease. So we were renting it initially. We signed the lease for the, you know, the first of the year, um, of 2013. So we're talking, you know, like a matter of months after we arrived wow. to Asheville, we signed a lease. So, um, that was, that was kind of crazy. It happened pretty quickly. And, and, and then, and, yeah, and, and so there's a, a million questions cause that, yeah. that space is formative for Sarah and I, like when, when we first visited Asheville, we, you know, we're, 
what we walked everywhere on the first trip that we could get to and we got to places that most people don't walk to we went all the way down to <laughs> uh like the foundation area and and summit coffee roasters on foot <laughs> uh yeah. because we're like well, let's see what this place is about and so um anyway we we put it in park at burial in south slope and just like there was a moment where we looked at each other like this is a this is a great way to spend a like a friday afternoon or uh a saturday afternoon i remember the the day exactly um and so from 2013 putting a you know uh signing a paper that says this is a thing we have to start like rent is due um to being a i'll call it a tourist destination and a local destination where it's like I, when people come to town, we go to Burial and South Slope because that's like a, an incredible representation of like the energy <laughs> that I think is here. Um, but like there's so much that exists in the brand that is Burial Beer to me. I wonder how how that process started, right? So now you, you show up in the South Slope location and I want to say it's Tom Selleck. It's, yes, it's one of yeah. the greatest mustachioed man of, of all time. But, you know, it's there's this giant Tom Selleck mural. Uh, you go to forestry camp, and it's like you're walking into, a like, a movie set. Like, it's so well done. Um, and I'm wondering, did it start like that? Or was it just a, a, a warehouse with a couple of taps, you know, drilled through a wall, and it <laughs> happens over time? Um, you know, we're in it now so let's 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 look at that transition from 2013 uh the ink is now drying on a document that says we exist and this is our location to to today gonna interrupt this episode to give a quick shout out to our season sponsor range urgent care we have a special uh discount available if you have not heard of range before I'll give you a quick highlights as to why we think they are doing things so special and so um, perhaps the right way in in healthcare. One is that when you schedule a visit, you will not be sitting in a waiting room. Uh, you will arrive on time and they will see you on time. They work with most major insurance companies, but if you want to pay out of pocket, you can too. There are a very, I'll call it simple and straightforward options as to how uh, and what it might cost to visit Range Urgent Care. Out of pocket, you want to pay as you go. It's $149 per visit. That means x-rays, checkups, procedures, medications, prescriptions, anything that you uh, might need to see a doctor for but is not necessarily an emergency room visit, consider Range as a great option for that. But now, I have chosen to uh, opt into their membership. And what that means is that I'm paying $30 a month and I can see range a number of times of a year. I can have online visits. I can be seen uh, through some sort of a Zoom visual portal. Uh, but to me, that's a hedge that, that makes sense. Uh, play with some power tools, lift weights, ride motorcycles, any of those things. To me, the membership makes perfect sense. If you're a family, they have family plan memberships. If you are a small business, you have some employees, you can offer the membership as a benefit to your company. Any and all of those uh, 
to me stand out as reasons that you should check out Range Urgent Care. Uh, we have a page on our website, making it in Asheville forward slash range, where we write a little bit about range. We show you some of the memberships. If you think that the membership is a good fit for you, uh, you can visit making it in Asheville.com forward slash range. Using that link, you will get a free month and an annual membership, or you can visit rangeurgentcare.com and just let them know that we sent you. Well, um, it's it's hard to really explain, I guess, because it's, we, we've just kind of allowed it to evolve, and we've always tried to be very true to ourselves and to kind of follow our passions. And um, I think that that's been such a critical part of, of our success is to you know, allow the business to be kind of flexible yeah. in, in how, I mean, I think the, there is certainly like a brand, you know, um, that we try to stay consistent to, um, though it admittedly, it did take us a few years before we really even like solidified what that brand was. Um, was it, were you always called burial beer? Yeah, we we're always called burial beer. And I think that that, you know, that's a pretty cool, important part of the story. Um, Jess, it was actually Jess's idea initially to, to call it burial. And so Doug and Jess went to grad grad school in New Orleans. So before they moved to Seattle, where I met them, they were down in New Orleans. And uh, New Orleans is just, you know, one of the coolest, oh, yeah. most unique cities in the world, you know, without a doubt. And it just has such a specific culture to it. And um, so, you know, this, I, so because of the fact that New Orleans is below sea level, if you were to go to like a cemetery, um, it looks very different than cemeteries almost anywhere else because there's all these like above ground tombs because, wow. because it's below sea level. Yeah. Um, and, and also there's this beautiful concept that they have there called the jazz funeral. So it's like, if somebody passes away, instead of being this very mournful, um, thing, they decide to kind of like flip it and celebrate the life of the person that passed. So they, they uh, basically parade around the streets, uh, with, you know, the whole second line thing. And they've got horns and they've got drums and um, members of the community uh, that might not even know the person that passed away just kind of join in on the parade and it's I don't know it's just it, it almost makes me emotional to think about because it's yeah. just such a such a cool view of of life and death and so that concept um, is what burial represents to us. And it's, I think we tie it back a lot to, to, uh, what I was saying about the farmhouse brewing tradition and this idea of like seasonality and, and, you know, crops grow and they die every year. And there's this renewal, um, as, as they, the dead crops break down and it feeds, feeds the soil. And like, there's just so many things. And the, the process of brewing a beer is, is, you know, has, there's a lot of kind of cyclical yeah. things that, that you can um, insert into the concept of, of brewing. So, you know, and then 
me being really into metal music (laughs) pretty much my whole life, you know, burial kind of resonated with me there. And so um, it was when we came up with like what the imagery was going to be like, um, for me, it was always it always had to be like this kind of concert poster, like album cover thing. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I reached out to a couple different artists that I I personally loved from that world. And um, thankfully, we were able to, you know, start to work with David Paul Seymour, who um, has you know, more or less from day one been, been our illustrator. Wow. And, and so, uh, obviously, you know, the burial cans, uh, bottles, posters, all that stuff, um, you know, wouldn't be as I- iconic, I guess, if it wasn't for, for David, um, and our relationship. That's amazing. And I, and I think iconic is the, is the right word. I mean, every bottle I've ever seen is like a, is a work of art and, the the skeletons and the like the reaper skeletons <laughs> are like are awesome um yeah. and and it's so I, it's hard to put the right words on it but one of the things that's coming up for me is that i wonder if it's cuz you did an exceptional job telling me the story of the, the brand's name and idea. And I wonder if it's because you're able to tell the story of the brand's name and idea that there is such a cohesive look and feel that I've experienced as a consumer, or if it's because there's such a cohesive look and feel, you're able to tell the story, (laughs) you know, like, I don't know if it's the chicken or the egg, but uh, the outcome is the same is that as a consumer, the story you just told makes a ton of sense and yeah. and fills in some of the holes because I, my mind sees a skeleton playing trumpets at times and <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and uh, you know so there's this celebration energy while it's you know morose or p- potentially and like the name yeah. points to burial um how fun yeah, a lot of our um kind of like core brands uh we we developed this concept of the light side and the dark side. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, our one-off beers, um, a lot of the beers that you see in 16 ounce cans and, and bottles and stuff like that don't, don't really utilize that concept. But this was something that was very, uh, very much a part of who we were when we first started to package beer. And it was basically every can would have two unique illustrations on it. And that was, you know, almost unheard of anyone doing that um it basically you know there was a lot more kind of cost that went into it basically i had to have two pieces of art for every individual skew you know what i mean but but it was um this really cool concept that we loved of kind of telling that that story of of life and death and the light side and the dark side so one side even though at the end of the day it was all illustrated by David Paul Seymour, who's pretty fucking metal. Uh, well, you know, you could kind of, you could tell which side was the light side and the dark side, even though they might both have skulls in it. Yeah. Uh, there was kind of like a more intensity to the dark side and a little bit more like, uh, I don't know what the right word would be, but it, it just, there was a little bit 
softer uh-huh. and uh, so I, I love that yeah. What, yeah. how about with uh names of beers like what, what was the first beer you went to market with does it have an important name i, I feel like beer names are sometimes you know make or break in it. <laughs> but but maybe it's just as an outsider uh, and i am a sucker for puns so i, I yeah. find that beers often are ba- you know puns are baked right into them and i i tend to love that but uh yeah. what was your what was the first beer you went to market with well th- that is kind of an interesting part of the story as well because as it pertains back to that this concept that we had of or at least a desire that we had of being this kind of farmhouse brewery um we were initially trying to name all of our beers after tools um or some in some cases kind of like weapons um you know because you think about this idea of like a a uh, a scythe or um a pitchfork or something like that that like obviously innately is meant to be used as a tool in on the farm but also through the years has been used as weapons um which is kind of a interesting again getting back to that kind of light side dark side concept but anyway you know our tap handles were uh, all tools when we first opened yeah. we had tools screwed onto the wall all over the place you know it kind of felt like you were walking into some like uh like in a scene of a horror movie when um jason is like chasing somebody and they end up going into a old barn and there's like scythes hanging and you're like oh that scythe's definitely gonna kill that person (laughs) yeah uh that was kind of the feel that it had and so we tried to name all of our beers after tools and you know scythe was our rye pale ale um uh pitchfork was like a kind of an amber saison that we did um skillet was one of our first beers even though that's that's kind of a tool of the kitchen i guess you could say (laughs) um you know, at some point we had to take some pretty dramatic liberties because we were running out of of uh, tools. And, you know, our our plan had always been to just kind of stay creative, constantly make new beers, not just rely on the same kind of core beers all the time. So we were pretty prolific and still are with our brewing of, of new unique recipes. So we kind of reached a point where we we're like, OK, we, we have to change our plan as far as how we name these beers it's just becoming too ridiculous so and and correct me if i'm wrong part of the reason why beer names are so uh unique is perhaps that they have to be right to be defensible in some way or is am i am i looking you have a lawyer as a partner so i imagine (laughs) you you've thought this through but is that part of it oh you can't have the same name yeah that that's kind of actually the kind of the boring part of the story is that we kind of quickly realized that, you know, within the the beer segment, we are also lumped in with like wine and um, in some cases spirits and, you know, lots of other beverages. So um, the, the, the bank of available names becomes pretty small because of, you know, obviously there's just, hundreds of thousands of products out there and uh you know of course not all of them are trademarked but there is a certain um level of respect that you have to have for other you know other businesses products and you know 
you have to kind of look at yourself and be like, would I be upset if somebody <laughs> named their beer scythe? Like probably. Yeah. So I don't want to do that to them. Um, so Doug, um, in his, you know, uh, lawyer mind was like, you know, if we create names that are borderline sentences <laughs> or fragments of a sentence, then it kind of becomes like, like literally we, we couldn't, if we wanted to trademark some of these names, they're like too complicated. Right. And, um, so it just becomes this thing where it's like the, the chances are dramatically smaller, uh, for somebody that, you know, accidentally named their product, a sentence that we came up with. And, you know, another kind of factor that came into play there was Jess, um, and her kind of, uh, art background. She's always been very much interested in, in some of the kind of like Flemish Renaissance art. And so some of these like Hieronymus Bosch is like a really good example. Like some of these paintings we found to be really, really inspirational because they're like super like psychedelic and um, like damaged and weird. And it, it felt in a lot of ways, like, uh, in in line with what we were trying to create as an imagery thing and so there was a kind of a period of time there where we started naming our beers after these old paintings that we really loved and um that's kind of, it's one of those like statute of limitations things where these <laughs> paintings are so old that you it's like free use at this point wow. um and so that was a really fun time like david would basically look at the painting that the beer was named after and do his own interpretation of the painting. And a lot of really cool things came out of that. And and we still, to this day, you know, release some of those beers. Like Death and the Miser is a good example. Fall of the Rebel Angels, Garden of Earthly Delights. Um, so that that kind of led us to the path that we're on right now of like kind of coming up with names that I guess could sound like they were an old Renaissance painting, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And they, they definitely have like some sort of metal ness to them, I guess. But, uh, you know, as, as Doug likes to say, they're, they're very introspective. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of the names that Doug comes up with, which at this point is, honestly, a a vast majority of them, um, you know, he'll tell you that they come from experiences that he's had and, um, challenges and stresses that he's had in his life. Um, and so I think that that all ties back into, you know, to get kind of like businessy to Mm -hmm. some degree is that we have a, what we call a niche as our business, or I guess you could, you could potentially even call it like a mission statement of sorts um, to create immersive experiences. And that's, that's our goal as a business uh, and all of the facets of our business. And I think that that, you know, maybe on its surface seems like it's the experience of going to the tap room and seeing the mural and sitting outside and drinking the beer Um and hope maybe chatting with somebody that you've never talked to before that you're sitting next to and the music that's playing and no, all that is 
definitely important and we pay attention to it. And, um, but also, you know, the, you can have a totally immersive experience with our beer at home on your sofa, you know, and that's like the art on the can and that's the copy on the can and that's the name of the beer. And that's the, uh, obviously the sensory experience that comes with that. And we always have hoped that people, um, kind of look a little bit deeper into like what's going on here, you know, like why is this beer called that? Why, um, what does this art represent? How does it tie back to the beer? Because we do really try to be intentional about all that. And um, there is a story pretty much always there. And um, it's so, this is one of the biggest challenges that I face in the business is finding the outlet to, to tell those stories because um, I've like, this right here is one of my favorite things to do because I actually get to kind of like tell the story, but in the world of modern, um, you know, social media and stuff like that, where so much data is, is hitting you all the time, it can be hard to like find, find space to really tell those stories. So you have to, you have to be kind of, uh, I don't know, a little vague, I guess, and just hope that, it intrigues people enough to like look deeper or ask the questions. I absolutely love that. Um, and I think that as a consumer, again, we've experienced that and we have <laughs> asked the question. So congrats. Well done. <laughs> mission accomplished. With, yeah. um, and, and, and again, this is Sarah and I moved to Asheville 2019. So you're at least six years into your business by the time we show up. Um, uh, were there moments along the way that you might identify as mile markers, um, where you're like, okay, uh, we didn't lose that much money this month or, you know, <laughs> like, uh, okay, we've had our thousandth customer. Okay. We opened a new location. Okay. Right. We have, uh, out kicked our capacity to brew. We're at, we're empty. Um, yeah. are, are there kind of moments in time that you look back on as important mile markers of the, the last seven years? Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's so many, um, you know, in the very early days we were a one barrel system, which is based, it's 31 gallons per batch. Um, it's, it's a stupid business plan to start a brewery like that. You know, it's, but we started with our own, earn money when we have no investors and we didn't even have a bank loan to start the brewery um which obviously thankfully we were able to find success and that's that's been huge for our growth um but you know in the early days it was like um the biggest stress I had was running out of beer like all the time. And, you know, we could only be open a couple days a week because we literally just didn't have enough beer to be open more than that. And, you know, when you're, when you're operating like that, if a beer doesn't turn out good and you have to dump it, it's like, I mean, I shed tears when that, when those (laughs) moments happened, it was, it felt, devastating um and you know and then we we scaled up to a 10 barrel system 
um, really not that long after um, opening. And that was a really, really intense, probably still to this day, like the most intense moment of, of uh, my professional career because it was, I felt in a lot of ways, from, you know, I, I was like the guy pro, in production. I, all the creation of the beer was, was on my shoulders and um, scaling up these recipes tenfold and trying to, you know, in a lot of ways I was like, hooking up the tanks by myself mm. and it was you know i was basically living at the brewery and that was a, a really intense time uh that really honestly changed me forever um and in a in a positive way like really helped me kind of um not like almost forced me to like remove a lot of stress from my life because mm. i felt like i was killing myself um, and then there was, so we bought, uh, the forestry camp property and I believe it was uh, late 2015, I want to say. Oh, wow. And, um, so yeah, really amazing property that, um, was originally built by the U S government, um, as, um, it was called forestry camp back then. And, and we kept the name. It was basically built in um the 30s um fdr created this program called the civilian conservation corps as part of uh, his new deal and it was designed to be this kind of economic stimulus uh, it was a combination of economic stimulus and also kind of uh, looped into this big movement to like create um, national and state parks and and stuff like that preservation um and so it started in 1933. It was basically for uh, young men between the ages of 18 and 25 um, to do public works. It was like um, building roads, building bridges, um, blazing trails. And the, the guys, there was bases, CCC bases all over the U.S. And the one here in Asheville was kind of mostly concentrating on building the Blue Ridge Parkway, which is, you know, one of the most special things that I feel like we, we have here mm -hmm. in Asheville passes right through town, just absolutely beautiful drive. Um, so really cool history to it. It's, um, six buildings on two acres. And, uh, oddly enough, we actually looked at that property when we first moved to Asheville. Um, it was available then and it was just way too big for us at that moment. Um, but, uh, lo and behold, a few years later, it was still available. We bought it and we kind of decided to approach the build out in kind of three stages. So the first stage was, was the brewery, um, and some storage for the brewery. And so we, we went from, uh, we decided to get a 20 barrel four vessel brew house. So technically the brew house is only twice the size of the Collier Avenue one, which is 10 barrel. But with the four vessels, it's really des designed to um, do multiple batches that kind of overlap each other. So mm. we have um, mostly 60-barrel fermenters over there, a um, couple 20-barrel fermenters. So um, that moment of getting that brewery off the ground was, was really, really challenging for us because we had to keep making beer. 
Um, so I was pretty much still brewing, uh, on Collier Avenue. So I wasn't really able to help as much with the opening of the new brewery. So we, um, you know, hired a couple guys to help us out with that and they didn't really have a ton of experience and we kind of didn't really know what we were doing. And then, you know, that was a huge, um, huge loan that we had to take out to buy that and to get all the equipment and like that moment was really, really, that was like our first true kind of like financial challenge Mm -hmm. where we were operating in the red for a while. And it was like extremely stressful. Um, so that was, that was a moment for sure, a milestone. And then, um, another kind of big one for me. Um, so in very early 2019, um, we kind of reached the like final stage of the build out of the forester camp property. And that was going to be the bar and restaurant. Mm -hmm. And so we had kind of like started the construction. Um, but honestly, no one was, no one in our organization was focusing on it. And, you know, we needed like a project manager to like move it forward. And I, in a lot of ways, um, as it pertains to the tap room uh, on Collier Avenue, I was always like so involved in, in just production of beer that I kind of felt like in some ways I missed out on being involved in the, like the look and the feel of it. Mm. Um, and so this opportunity with forestry camp, you know, it was kind of like, a, we had this absolutely gorgeous historical building mm-hmm. And, you know, I felt so inspired by it. And I just had all these ideas in my head of like ways to make it look and feel. And, um, and, but I just felt like I didn't have the bandwidth to like kind of contribute to that and to, and to be brewing every day on top of all the other kind of things that come with owning a business. So I, I kind of approached Doug and Jess and I said, Hey, you know, I feel like one of us needs to focus on this. I feel very inspired. I think that we have the staff now to like take over brewing at at Collier and like, I would love to take this on. And so that was like, I, I, have never even worked in a restaurant, (laughs) let alone opened a restaurant. Um, that was, uh, I was going out on a limb there, but, um, I think Doug and Jess definitely saw the value in, in me doing that. And so, um, so I basically at the beginning of 2019 was like all in on getting that, that restaurant open. And it was, you know, incredibly challenging for me. Um, but also obviously very rewarding. And, and in some ways it was like a, like an identity crisis thing because everybody knew me as, as the head brewer of burial. And now I had almost nothing to do with the brewing. Um, and so, you know, it was, but it was also a good way for me to kind of show my, my passion for, for what we were building. And I hopefully, you know, get a lot of interest in it, um, at least within the the beer community. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we opened the doors late September of 2019 and, you know, that was, um, intensely, uh, 
scary and um, stressful and, um, you know, not really knowing what I was doing and kind of having to lean a lot on like the staff that we hired. And um, yeah, that, that was pretty, that was pretty intense. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, so then COVID hit, you know, That's another mile marker, I'm sure. <laughs> that goes without saying, you know, our restaurant was, uh, you know, half a year old at best. Yeah. And so that was really difficult for us to, you know, we really hadn't like gotten to a comfortable place by any means with the restaurant. We were still very much like dialing it in and getting the word out about it. So that was ex extremely deflating for me. And, and, um, I probably spent the first few months of, of kind of the COVID era, um, feeling very like having almost no inspiration. Like I felt like I wasn't contributing much at all. <laughs> I was just like, put me to work. I don't really know what to do. Um, which was, which was kind of challenging for, for me. But, um, after doing that for a little while, um, kind of trying to limp by with the restaurant, um, we had a few kind of like close calls with COVID. We had a few members of the brew staff that were, um, not feeling really comfortable coming into work every day. And a lot of little shifts ended up happening where essentially um, I needed to get back into the brewery. Mm. So I went from, you know, not brewing, really not even touching the brewing equipment for over a year and kind of being thrown back into the brewery um, by myself and trying to kind of keep up with everything. And it was a really strange, uh, strange time there of just trying to like get my feet back on me and like, but my guess is that, uh, demand hasn't slowed down. Right. So through the pandemic, I imagine people are drinking as much beer maybe as before, perhaps just yeah. differently. Is that wrong? Right. Close? Yeah. I mean, our obviously, you know, every business out there had to pivot in different ways and, and we were no exception and we had to change a lot of the way we operated. Um, but, you know, I was back at Collier, which, you know, at that point, um, that brewery, you know, that brewery isn't really our, that's obviously not our production brewery, right? So like it's making a fairly small percent of the beer that we're making. Mm -hmm. um, but it was at that time, it had really kind of shifted into being our Imperial stout, like brewery, you know, it was like, we basically dedicated three of our tanks to making Imperial stouts. And we were trying to put out a new Imperial stout every single week. And these are, you know, heavily adjuncted beers that are like, 15% ABV and they're like, you know, amongst the hardest beers to make that we make. And, um, so it was, that was pretty intense for me, but eventually, you know, it, like riding the bike, of course it came back to me and it was actually really wonderful for me to kind of get back to the roots there. And yeah, not like a lot of time went by, but it was enough to, 
you know, and my whole headspace had like shifted yeah. To, yeah. to opening a restaurant. So, um, and then, um, eventually things started to kind of like level out a little bit. And, um, so we, we hired, um, hired a guy to come in and kind of take over that, that role of brewing. And that kind of allowed me to, to shift into yet another role. So over the course of the last few years, um, I've had to, to really kind of, I've just had so many different roles and I've also kind of had, had this role of kind of like the fill in guy because I have that brewing background and I know how the, how the brewery and the, you know, the equipment works. I can always jump back into that. Whereas Doug and Jess, um, they, they don't brew commercially, you know what I mean? Mm. So they, they, I'm sure that Doug could figure it out. Um, you know, Doug knows beer like the back of his hand, but he's just not a. But it's a, one a thing to be a it's, yeah, it's one thing to be a car guy. It's another thing to be a mechanic, right? But, like right. you can know that it's however many cylinders, however many horsepower, <laughs> right? And have it uh, rote, but it's another yeah. thing to be able to like to to know where the plug goes. I and and I'm I'm with you on that, and and so your role seems very important but as i look behind you i don't see like brewery books so what <laughs> right. so what uh, i feel like i have a sense of what's coming next what is this new role yeah well kind of the way th- this story started was there was a there was a period of time um after the production brewery started and was making good beer it was like rolling smoothly um, and I was still brewing at the pub where this was like, uh, it kind of, in a lot of ways felt like a flashback to like the beginning days of burial where I kind of had like total creative freedom on what I could make. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it felt like in a lot of ways, the beer that was brewed there was, was just kind of filling holes and creating diversity on the tap list and it could it could kind of be whatever it it wanted to be whatever i was inspired by and so this was kind of a interesting path that i ended up walking down that had some positives and some negatives at the end of the day but um i really had always been um very fascinated with using kind of botanicals in beer so another one of those beers that uh, I would probably I would call an epiphany beer for me, though it, it wasn't necessarily the first beer that I discovered, but it was a very critical beer for me. It was a beer um, made by Jolly Pumpkin called Baudelaire I.O., which is is a saison with um, with flowers in it. So it has like hibiscus and chamomile. Um, I'm sure there's some other flowers in it, maybe elderflower. I forget exactly. It's been a while since I've had it, but um, that beer really kind of blew my mind and like made me think about uh, other contributions to beer that could make it, um, you know, more complex that weren't just the standard brewing ingredients. So um, I started to make a lot of beers with with different botanicals, and so that started me started me walking down this path of just botanical discovery. And so I'd be reading all these herbalism books and, um, this it's kind of weird because I think it's probably a very backwards roundabout way to discover beverages like vermouth and Amaro. Mm. 
But I kind of discovered those beverages through through wanting to learn more about herbs and botanicals and stuff. So um, I kind of just started walking down this path of trying to get my hands on as many Amaro as I and vermouth as I could and trying to like pick them apart as much as I could. Like, what am I tasting? Um, one of the most fascinating parts about these beverages is that there's like a very long standing tradition of secrecy mm -hmm. as it surrounds the production of these. So like, you know, you might be able to read the back of the bottle and discover a handful of the botanicals that are in there, but it'll say, you know, 56 botanicals in this and you know, yeah, it's a you Dr. Know, small... Pepper recipe, you know, <laughs> right, yeah. sugar. Right, exactly. So, um, I think this concept kind of scratched that itch that I've so for so off so long had um, about you know some of these more like avant-garde musicians that I've loved um, some you know like out ambient or drone albums um, that are maybe sometimes produced with like synthesizers or sometimes with you know, a laptop, but like when you listen to them, you don't innately know what, like how it was created. It's not like you're like, Oh, I hear a guitar, bass, drums, and a saxophone. Like that makes sense. Um, uh, it's so much more like otherworldly than that. So you have to really dig and to try to figure out like how, how this was made, like what the process was, what, <laughs> what uh what strange instruments yeah. were utilized and so um i i kind of like secretly love that secrecy part of these because you really have to like dig deep to find to get any sort of insight and, and then you also have to rely on your own palate a lot um and the more you get your hands on botanicals and actually like play around with them and you know like steep them in hot water or um, a grain spirit or whatever you start to, okay like this is what this smells like i actually recognize that from this fernet i had like oh shit like it's there's constantly these in these moments of like okay this, things are starting to line up for me here sure. and that just it, it's so it's funny because it's like pretty much the stark opposite of beer because, and, and, you know, don't get me wrong. I, like I said before, the camaraderie and the sharing and the relationships of beers is what drew me to it in the first place and yeah. is one of, one of the most beautiful parts of it. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting because when you're a, a brewer, you can, you can reach out to almost any brewer and be like, Hey, could you give me some insight on like how you made that happen? And like, it's quite rare that they'll be like, nah, I'm sorry. That's proprietary <laughs> information. You know, like, like, yeah, man, of course, like this is exactly what we did. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that's super cool. And I think that if it wasn't for that, the overall quality of beer wouldn't be where it is. Yeah. But at the same time, that sort of like concept 
does tend to lead to a place where like a lot of people's beers start to taste the same, Heard. Yeah. you know, because everyone's kind of doing, okay, like this way of making a hazy IPA is super successful. We should do that, you know? <laughs> and, um, whereas if you're trying to make a vermouth and you really don't have much of a starting place, yeah. <laughs> uh, you're more inclined to produce a very unique individual product because it's, it's your own journey. It's your own kind of trial and error. Yeah. And, uh, and I, and I love that about it. So um, to get back to the, visuals, yeah, visual. so visuals is a brand that we created that has changed, has morphed, quite a bit since the beginning idea. So visuals came about, um, it was a, a thing that Doug and I wanted to create as a means to kind of like get back to the roots of why we fell in love with beer in the first place. So this is just, uh, you know, I'm incredibly proud of, of what burial is and has become. And I think that it's, um, constantly very creative and different and, I love all that, but there is a part of your head. It's like, man, I really love like this type of imagery as an example. Like I wish that we could have cans that looked like this, but it just doesn't fit, fit the brand. You know what I mean? And so, and then there's also that idea of like uh, the, the, the business gets to be big enough where you have, you know, a lot of employees to look out for and it just becomes really complicated where you can't necessarily make decisions based off of whim or, you know, personal, yeah. uh, enjoyment. It becomes much bigger than that. So this visuals brand was like, let's keep it niche. Let's, uh, you know, make fun little like single barrel beer projects, um, we can put beers that just don't really feel like they fit into the burial lineup over there. We can have different labels, you know what, let's make the labels like in house so that we have much more freedom over it. And it kind of, in a lot of ways, initially felt like it was getting back to the homebrew days, you know, it was like small batch, do whatever inspires you in the moment, make a label yourself um, and put it out into the world. And we kind of quickly found that burial forestry camp, you know, all these things we have going on, uh, didn't allow us much freedom or time to like, to actually do this like pet project of ours. So it kind of like sat on the back burner for a little while. There was you know, months, if not a year plus that went by where we didn't make a visuals beer. And so, um, we also had this concept initially that we, we wanted it to be a special forestry camp only line. Okay. So <clears throat> we want, we envisioned this thing where people go into forestry camp, they look at the beer list, they see visuals on there and they're like, I don't even know what that is or like, Oh yeah, I've, I've heard of that. I kind of forgot about that. Like we should totally get that. And you kind of feel like you are like in on the, the secret, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And I think a lot of that stuff just, um, uh, didn't really 
play out quite like we thought it would. So um, then we started to make, we got a license to make wine because we, um, a lot, a lot of factors went into it. Like I said, when I first met Doug and Jess, they, they were, were really, people. yeah. And like, they never really weren't wine people. And actually Doug kind of re was reinvigorated with his passion for wine. Not that long ago. And um, he's like, amongst the most knowledgeable people I've ever met in my life about wine, huh. uh, which is amazing. Um, so we, we decided we wanted to start making wine. And another kind of factor that played into that was that we started to go to hop selection every year with this concept where during hop harvest, you go out to the Northwest, you get your hands and your nose on the hops and you pick the ones you like the best. And those are the ones you contract and they send, um, send them back to, to you for the rest of the year. And so we, we realized that a lot of the grapes, um, that we were interested in for wine were coming out of like Oregon and Northern California and some in Washington. So we were like, wonder if we could loop all this together yeah. where we're out there selecting hops. It's the same harvest season as grapes. Uh, we can buy some grapes and, you know, help with the harvest and ship them back. So, um, so we, we started making wine. We didn't really know how it was going to fit into the, the greater burial brand. And so um, then, since we were making wine, I was like, well, I got to make vermouth, you know, like sure. such a great opportunity. And then also um, in North Carolina, a wine license also allows you to make cider. And we were like, well, we are fortunate enough to live in an area of the country where we've got some pretty great apples. So we can start dabbling in, in making cider. So eventually the visuals brand, we kind of were like, okay, burial can be the, the beer brand. You know what I mean? Let's just kind of shift visuals into being this wine and cider and vermouth and possibly other um, non-beer beverages that, that we want to make in the future. So now, um, once I got out of the brewery, you know, post COVID or like amidst COVID, yeah. uh, got out of the brewery, my role kind of shifted into what, you know, my title now is director of development. Um, and it's kind of this idea of developing new products, um, but also developing relationships, um, which has always been really important to us. And we've, we've really tried to put a lot of effort into developing relationships outside of the beer community, um, other makers and, you know, growers or what have you. So, um, but that my kind of main focus right now is, is visuals. And, um, so we, we got a bunch of grapes in, couple months ago from this year we got them from mendocino so in california um and we got a wine press and um bought a you know a bunch of new uh, neutral oak barrels and um so we've been making holy moly we, we have made wine we have uh you know several different products in the works we actually just released uh our nouveau wine uh, yes, was it? Yeah, yeah. Yesterday. Wow. So, so uh, we could go to forestry camp, buy some visuals. Yeah. Wine? So, 
we actually have so at our um, at both Forestry Camp and at the Burial Tap Room, we have um, two wines that were from the previous nice. harvest year um, that are that are available. Also, two vermouths, a sweet and a dry vermouth. So we have four products. Holy moly! Uh, that are currently available. Uh, if you ask for them at, at either location, uh, they they have them for you. Um, and then we so the the nouveau wine is just really cool kind of concept of basically putting out an extremely young wine. So this is uh, 2020 vintage. Yeah. We're, we're literally talking like you know two months since we got the grapes in, um, and it's in a bottle. So it's you know not barrel aged at all, and it's just it's so there's you don't have that tannin structure from the wood. So it's just like really lush and fruity and it's a really cool kind of like insight I, as i've been saying it's like insight into what this harvest year huh. is like i feel like uh, that that's a marketer's creation <laughs> like oh like how do we get this how do we sell something immediately right nouveau yeah. wine is yeah. is the is a nouveau rage i i suspect but that's awesome i uh, yeah. I it's now cool. now knowing that this is a thing, I knew that it was a work in progress. I didn't know where we stood on the timeline, and I, I'll call it my own uh, lack of doing homework. But um, I want to attempt to transition from history to future. So we're nearing the end of twenty twenty. I don't know exactly when this episode's going to come out. It might be early 2021, like early days of next year. Knowing that we've just lived through the a year. That is absolutely unheard of, and uh, I guess it's always been true that you can't be sure what the future holds. What what is in store uh, across the three uh, brands and business verticals? I know that uh, as director of development, visuals is is core. What is what should we expect from visuals early twenty twenty one? Well, we've been um, can we've been putting out cider so we're making natural cider which is something that i became pretty passionate about extremely recently it was actually something that came out of opening forestry camp because forestry camp's kind of initial inspiration was um basque cuisine yeah so you know this you know kind of area of spain that kind of goes into france um it's basically has its own language its own culture in a lot of ways and so um through doing a lot of research on on the basque region and the cuisine of that area i discovered basque cider which is just just really beautiful um, it's basically taking the natural wine concept mm-hmm. and applying it to, to apples. Um, and really apple, it's interesting to me because cider in America, I feel like is by most people is kind of viewed as this like beer substitute, um, where it should have like the same sort of price point as beer. It should be, um, kind of consumed in a, in a similar way. Uh-huh. Whereas like really, in a lot of other parts of the world. And if you think about apples being a fruit, like wine grapes are a fruit, um, cider is considered to be more of like a wine 
in a lot of other places um, and treated as such and often aged for, you know, a whole year and vintaged like wine is and all that stuff. But, you know, essentially the idea is that whatever natural yeast and bacteria lives on the fruit is what ferments it. Yeah. Um, so you get this kind of like uh, funky, tart, um, very like earthy, sometimes, you know, floral. Um, it, in a lot of ways, I I think it's um, congruent to like the farmhouse and Cezanne concept. Yeah. Um, and I, I get a lot of similar um, sensory experiences out of it where it's often very dry it's yeah it's a little funky it's a little tart um it's got that fruity element to it um in some cases it's quite effervescent like those beer styles are not always but um so anyway we've been putting the actively making those uh we've released one at the tap room as a draft only from this harvest year so far but we've got several more in the works um um working on new vermouth products i'm working on um, hoping to make some bitters products um some kind of like spritz sort of things like a wine wine spritz sort of thing Uh, also look i'm doing a lot of research and development around like some non-alcoholic beverages so kind of in the like aperitif Mm -hmm. digestif sort of world but non-alcoholic so kind of like a cocktail inspired non-alcoholic thing um holy moly so that's so so the the sky's the limit and you can go as wide as you want when the visuals brand i am very excited to see what uh (laughs) what results what if you need uh you know uh, i wouldn't call it quality control and my palate is not sophisticated (laughs) like that but I could definitely right. give you a uh, a poor man's take on, on, what, it, <laughs> on, on what I'm sure. experiencing. I look I look forward to seeing that. I want to um, I want to ask a question though that is is tangent tangential, and you you pointed towards it earlier, which is relationships. This is we're going to transition quickly into a uh, a little bit of a, a Asheville focused speed round to to close out this conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in you mentioned how like beer and relationships and one of the questions that I thought was um, that led to interesting insight was like choosing Asheville despite being, you know, Beer City USA to build a beer place. And then the fact that there aren't many secrets in in beer. Um, When you think of Asheville and community, like what what shows up for you? Oh man, there's, there's so much. Uh, I mean, the beer side in it of itself is, is obviously, you know, kind of square one for us. Um, you know, we have pretty, pretty good relationships with almost every brewery in town or in the area. Um, and, you know, we've collaborated in some way, shape or form with almost all of them. Um, and, you know, the coolest, one of the coolest parts about the Asheville community is, is like, it, you know, we can always kind of lean on each other and um, people are always very happy to help. So obviously, like I mentioned, information is, is a good example of that. But like, you know, say you were shorted a bag of you know, oats and you really need oats for tomorrow's brew. Uh, you know, I've got 
so many breweries that I could reach out to and be like, Hey, can I borrow an extra bag of oats from you? And like, most likely I'll, I'll, I'll find one before the brew day tomorrow. Wow. And like, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Um, I think that we, through running the brewery and through doing a lot of collaborations, collaboration has always been a huge part of who we are. And we, um, love to host collaborators. Um, you know, we, we've had the fortune of being able to travel a ton for the brewery and we've made relationships all over the country and really all over the world. And so, um, collaboration becomes this really great way of like getting together with your friends, you know, like a lot of ways making a beer, um, is just like an ancillary benefit to getting to hang out with your friends. And so we're really proud of Asheville we think it's really fucking cool. We think we have a lot to offer. Uh, it's a beautiful place. And so we, we love to, to host collaborators and bring them into Asheville and like just really take care of them. And kind of through doing that through the years, we've developed a lot of great relationships with um, restaurant owners and bar owners and um, you know, other businesses. Um, and so there's a lot of camaraderie there as well. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, we, we've made attempts, uh, to expand our kind of collaborative spirit to things outside of beer that maybe don't make any sense on the surface to collaborate with a brewery, but like things like the Asheville art museum or the Asheville symphony mm-hmm. or, um, you know, French broad chocolates is, you know, maybe not too far of a stretch. Um, we have a pretty cool relationship with harvest records where we like play all, uh, all vinyl at forestry camp. So, um, we kind of worked, uh, worked a deal with them. And a lot of times when collaborators come into town, we'll take them to harvest records and we'll be like, Hey, I'll buy you or like, I'll pay for a record. You pick it out. And it'll be your contribution to the vinyl library at Forestry Camp. So, like every time we play that record, that's kind of like your imprint on it. Um, you know, lots of little things Love like it. that. You know, we just um, worked with Al Bakery just this past week. Yeah. Um, Susanna and the crew made a bunch of uh, bunch of um, pastries, um, croissants that we actually <laughs> added to a beer. Wow. Uh, yeah. And lots of little little things like that, you know. Uh, and then also like the the whole vendor, um, for lack of a better word, um, side of things. Especially as we've started a restaurant, has been huge. So like, Forestry Camp's whole like philosophy is um, very much about like supporting other local makers, growers. Um, we have this whole animal program where we get in, um, you know, obviously like whole chickens and, and fish, um, but whole pigs, um, like quarter or half cows Mm -hmm. and we butcher them all ourselves. And so we're getting these, all these products from local, local ish, at least, you know, in the Carolinas, um, or even like seafood, um, we made a relationship with local seafood, which is out in Raleigh, and they get 
um, seafood from the coast every day. And we have a tap room in Raleigh, so we're sending beer there all the time. So we have a truck there. So we're like, hey, can we pick up some seafood from you guys while we're in Raleigh wow. and bring it back for forestry camp? Um, so there's, yeah, there's so many things like that. Um, you know, Asheville is such a, it, I mean, at the end of the day, like you kind of hinted at earlier, it's a, it's a pretty small city, you know what I mean? And like you live here long enough and as long as you like, you know, have an interest in, in other creative people, um, and, and what they're all about, then, um, and you just inquire and you say hi, um, people are really open and excited to meet other people in the community. And, um, it's, it's great. It, I mean, I guess if you're the type of person that hates to go to the grocery store and be seen and have to talk to somebody, <laughs> which, you know, I think all of us are there yeah, at times, yeah, yeah. it can be challenging. Uh, but it's, it's, I've always said that, the number, if I had to pinpoint like the number one best part about Asheville, it's, it's the people, you know, it's, it's the pe- like, and it's so cool to me that almost everybody I meet that lives in Asheville, um, has some sort of like interesting hobby. It feels like, you know, you, like, even if you, I initially meet this person because they're like a banker, yeah. you know, Lawyer, something like that. Whatever. Yeah, like it could be anything that's seemingly mundane on its surface, but the more you get to know them, uh, you find out that they, you know, are a potter yeah. in their free time. Raise they play bees, have like a crazy beehive yeah. in their backyard. I, I completely right. agree. That is, yeah. um, and what what I've found, Sarah and I have found, is that uh, if you show curiosity and like genuine interest, uh, yeah there is a very warm welcoming that almost everyone will provide to say like, yeah, come check out, come check out my, my thing. Like come, come right, look yeah. at this beehive. Come like, this is how we brew. Um, and I, I hear here on favorite thing about Asheville are its people. <laughs> um, last question of this podcast <laughs> is a, uh, is a staple of the podcast and it is a magic wand question. So to you today, Tim, if I had a magic wand or anyone in the audience had a magic wand and could grant you a single wish, what would that wish be today? Hmm. Um, Well, I think that one thing that I've thought immensely about um, over the course of 2020 with all the crazy things that have happened and um, the political climate and the social climate and, and but also something that has come out of um, being a business owner, um, a business that has, you know, like 70 plus employees. Um, I think so much more about um, people and um, relationships and how to speak to people. And um, I think that especially something that for me seemed to really come out of the political social political climate of 2020 was this kind of concept of like showing compassion and empathy for others. Mm. I feel like, um, so I guess 
I guess I would use the magic wand to instill a certain level of, of passion or compassion, I, I should say, and empathy to, to everyone and to kind of just stop um, fe- feeling so in- inclusive about, you know, who you care about and who you think matters. And I think to some people that is a pretty small bubble. And I think a lot of people don't, um, don't really consider uh, the challenges um, of other people outside of their bubble and that not, not everyone thinks like you and not everyone has the, um, the opportunities that you have. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think if everybody were to, I mean, it's such a classic uh, concept of putting yourself in other people's shoes. And I think if people did that more often and really thought, Hey, even though I don't know that person whatsoever, um, what, what can I garner from what concept can I get out of like what they're dealing with? And can I have some, some, um, some understanding and some empathy for their position? So I, I, I love that. And that is uh, as close to my answer these days as possible. And I think the issue most people, when they when they attempt to hop in the other person's shoes, it's like yeah. a single moment in time. Well, if I were them, I wouldn't have done that thing. I wouldn't right. have said <laughs> that thing, but that forgets the entire lived experience of that person. And and it for it, it omits the difference between yours and theirs. And so like, no, that if you were them, you would do exactly the thing because they've experienced exactly what they've experienced and it's different than yours. Um, what a, uh, what a crazy opportunity it would be to really spend time in, uh, in that level of like awareness of the other. And, and I think it's a very astute request from the from the universe and community <laughs> at large it's one of those things that i so often wish that um aliens would attack earth so there's a single so, enemy so that yeah, so that earth is like on the same team yeah. for for once you know what i yeah, mean yeah and i think that would change everything for the way that we operate and the way that we deal with each other i think i think I think that you are uh, right. I don't want aliens to exist. I I just want that outcome. Uh, Or at least aliens can exist. Don't attack us, aliens, if you're listening. Um, But, Tim, what a... I'll try and recap my my, uh, emotions and thoughts on this conversation. I just... I'm so... um, And I hope that if a listener makes it this far into the conversation, they feel it as well. Like, amazed at the ability to create and like continue to uh try new things and do new things and the success that you've had through burial and and being um i don't know a staple in this community at least to uh the the newcomers like sarah and myself um (laughs) is is aspirational and so thank you for making time this morning and uh we i really really enjoyed this conversation yeah, so did I, man. It was awesome. Like I said at the beginning, uh, I'm I'm thankful that you guys do this and you know take so much time and put so much effort forth um, to tell people's stories. And um, 
yeah, obviously it's it's fun. Uh, it's fun, I guess, to talk about myself <laughs> as much as it's kind of awkward. But like, it's been amazing to uh, get to to listen to a lot of the you know the backlog of of podcasts that you guys have done. You've talked to so many cool people and. Um, and I also want to thank you for having my wife. I know, so I can't um, believe I was trying to find a spot the whole time. Uh, yeah. This is the first time that the the same last name has shown up in in, <laughs> in uh, multiple episodes, and it's been a privilege. You guys are um, are really exceptional, Sarah and I. Uh, uh, you know, romantically aspire to be. Uh, as cool as you two one day <laughs> and and to see your farm oh, and your chickens. I think you're there. You're there for sure. Uh, uh, but yeah, I appreciate that. That's kind of you. And uh, yeah, like I was, I was gonna, I kind of imagine that we'd talk a little bit more about, you know, maybe some things that in, inspire me. Um, and I would, I would definitely be remiss to, to not mention how much uh, Annalise, my wife inspires me all the time. She's incredibly, um, passionate and, yeah. and creative about what she does and she uh does definitely doesn't get the as much credit as she deserves of ideas that she tosses my way that uh end up coming to fruition uh, at burial <laughs> I love it. Uh, and but so she, uh, her her episode uh I, I am not as good at episode numbers as sarah but late 60s early 70s on the making it a nashville podcast <laughs> spoon and hook annalise gormley uh, episode was absolutely fantastic this one was as well and so as a final uh final final question how might people find you on the world wide web if they wanted to support reach out follow along yeah sure um yeah i guess like most people uh instagram is kind of what we're using most to promote our businesses so we're just uh at burial beer at forestry camp at drink visuals uh, we also have burial dtr which is our um our raleigh tap room for burial um it's you know burialbeer.com it's forestrycamp.com it's drinkvisuals.com uh we have so many you things did, you, that was uh, the best that was the best <laughs> rundown of links we'll have them all in the show notes page on this episode um but you awesome. most people are like uh i think we we have a website so that was a wonderful <laughs> job g- gathering yeah. all of those links and remembering them off uh the top of your head tim thank you so much again uh for your yeah. time this morning yeah happy to be part of it thank you